0: You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other in Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, guys. Thank you guys for joining us today. I have not met you. My name is Josh Chevalier. I'm the college pastor uh, here at Midtown. Uh, and so we're glad that you guys are here today. Hey, we're in part six of a series that we're calling Follow, and so if you guys have not been here for the first five weeks or you missed some of them, you guys can catch that on the podcast, and uh, yeah, they've all been good so far, and so I look forward to kind of chatting with you guys today. So quick confession before I start. So I came to faith at a pretty young age, and uh, came to faith at like three years old, and really like I didn't come to faith because like I loved God or because I loved Jesus, It was pretty much so I could get like a get-out-of-jail-free card, essentially. Um, I grew up in a uh, very fundamentalist church background. I won't like talk about what denomination I grew up in because I don't want to embarrass them. But uh, I essentially grew up in a denomination that was very much about fear. And so we, uh, every year, like this denomination, like the big churches in it, would put on this play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Uh, And they will proceed for like 90 minutes to tell like six or seven different stories about like two different people's lives that had these divergent paths. Uh, And one goes to heaven, one goes to hell. And I didn't really know what heaven was like because they didn't talk about it a ton. But like I knew I didn't want to go to hell. And so I pretty much came to faith uh, because I didn't want to go to hell. And it was really all about me. And so I was a Jesus consumer uh, growing up. And, you know, honestly... Uh, to my own shame, like I, that was pretty much what I was uh, for most of my childhood. And so I have countless stories uh, about being a consumer and not a follower of Jesus. And so I could choose from a bunch, but since I have a Rolodex, I'll give you guys one of my best ones. And so when I was 12 years old, my family, we moved from uh, DC, from Florida. And so we moved there because my dad wanted to start a church in DC. And so I was not very happy with my dad for doing this because I had a bunch of friends in Florida that I liked and got along with great, and uh, DC like was cold. And if you know anything about me, like I hate cold weather. In fact, since I've been 22 and I could like make my own decisions, like I have, n- I've lived in LA, Austin, Florida, never anywhere that gets below like 32 degrees more than a few times uh, in the winter. And so, but my family moved to DC uh, when I was 12. But there was one good thing about it. They had middle school sports, which means like you didn't have to pay to play sports, which I was excited about because my family didn't have a lot of money. And so this is a way that I could contribute back to my family and play a sport I loved. And one of the sports I loved was football. And so I decided in seventh grade to go out for the, high, for the middle school football team. Only a couple problems here. One problem is that they only accept 35 people on the team and about 80 people try out. Uh, and the second problem is, like, I was really, really, really short. Now I know it's surprising considering my physique now, uh, but as a kid, like I was really short. I was four foot five and 59 pounds as a seventh grader. Now that was uh, I was 12 years old. Give you perspective? That's the average height and weight of a nine-year-old. And so I decided I'm going to go out for the football team. So I get to like the new student orientation. I go up to the football coach, pretty confidently. And say, hey, like, I want to sign up for the football team. Where do I sign up? And he just looks at me, looks at my parents, like with this confused look. Like, is this kid serious? And they're like, yeah, he's crazy, <laughs> uh, but serious. And so, you know, the coach goes, hey, like, kid, look, there's kids that are your dad's size out there. Do you really want to get hit by kids that size? I, I was like, hey, look, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. You know, <laughs> I had my cliches lined up, and he's like. Finally, he, like, got, he wasn't going to convince me to not sign up. So he finally just said, hey, kid, look, like, even if you made the team, like, I don't have any pads or a helmet to fit you. So I don't even know what you would do. And I was like, well, we can figure that out later. And so I decided to go out for the team because I want to make some new friends and I like to embarrass myself. And so I go out for the team and, you know, first day goes by and I remember that night just being like, what the heck did I get myself into? And I lay down. Uh, on my pillow that night, and I just start praying. I'm like, God, like help me, like look, like I just want to, I don't want to get cut, cause I don't want to get embarrassed, cause like it's one thing to get cut from a sports team, it, it you know, it's worse if you're like four foot five and 59 pounds. You should have never gone out in the first place. And so I'm just praying. I'm like, God, I will do anything you ask me. I'll tell everybody about you in the whole school. Like I would get up on a lunch table and like shout your praises, like look, I'm four 4'5", 59 pounds. Like, this is a miracle. If I make this team, it'll make you look good. And so I just started throwing out everything. And like, lo and behold, like after three days of trials, like I make the team. And like the coach wasn't lying. Like, he didn't have pads that fit me. I'll show you guys a quick picture of me when I was, yeah. He wasn't lying. Like that, the kid on the right was like six foot four, like 230 pounds. And, uh, and you see like, I maybe can't see, but my pads, like, down to my ankles, like, that's not how they're supposed to fit. I was, like, David with Saul's armor going out on the football field. I'd actually wear a ski mask, like, under my helmet in order for it to fit. Like, when I was an eighth grader, they actually bought me my own helmet, which was great that fit. Um, but I made all these promises, and I can tell you, like, I didn't fulfill one of them. Like, I forgot about the next day. Once I made the team, I was like, God, I got this. But, like, God was somebody that was there to meet my needs, essentially, as a 12-year-old, and that's how I treated them. Um, And, you know, I have, again, I have countless examples of this, but, like, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're consumers as well with God. And you know what? Like, it's okay to start there. In fact, many of Jesus' followers in the Scriptures, his disciples, many of them started out as consumers. Even last week, Jake talked about um, Peter and Peter's story um, of him following Jesus and uh, and. Uh, Really, when uh, Jake told the story about him uh, coming to Jesus and Jesus saying, like, who do you guys think that I am? And Peter has this great proclamation that he's the Messiah. And and then Jesus goes, like, hey, like, yeah, like, that means I'm going to have to die and all these things are going to go bad. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and goes, hey, Jesus, like, you're starting to get negative on us. Like, can you chill out on that? Like, you're the Messiah. Like, we're about to take over. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, like, why why does he do that? And he does that because what he says is that Peter had the things of humans in mind, the concerns of humans in mind, and not God's concerns. And so even Peter, from the very beginning um, of his ministry with Jesus, was a consumer. In fact, you see in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the end of Jesus' time with his disciples, uh, when they're in the garden, Jesus gets arrested. He gets betrayed by Judas, which we'll talk about today. And then all of his disciples who were there the whole time, they leave him. They're gone. And so you can see that it was all about what they could get from the beginning from Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, like, being a consumer of Jesus is actually a good thing. Uh, If you think about it, if you look at the commands of Jesus, you actually, like, study the life of Jesus and what he talks about. If you were to put those things into practice, whether you believe that Jesus was divine or whether he was God Uh, or whether he's worth following, if you put those things into practice, you're going to be a better husband, a better parent, a better spouse, a better employee. Like, you're going to be a better person. You're going to have more friends if you put those things into practice. And so being a Jesus consumer isn't bad. And the reality is is the the disciples started there, and we all start there at some point. But the reality is, is God has so much more for us and wants to invite us into something so much deeper and so much bigger than that. And we know that all of them, all the disciples, they didn't stay as consumers. Jesus dies on the cross, he resurrects, he comes back, he talks to them, they see who he is, and they end up giving their lives for Jesus. And in fact, of the original disciples, 10 of the 11 of them, of the 11 of them actually literally give their own lives and die for Jesus. But there was one that didn't make it. A guy named Judas who we're all familiar with. And he, uh, we see his story in the scriptures. And so we're going to look at his, his story uh, and how he didn't actually move away, past being a consumer to a follower. And so a little backstory on Judas. We all know who Judas is. Judas Iscariot. Um, he's famous slash infamous. But Judas, like the rest of them, thought that Jesus was essentially the Messiah, right? And we know that he was. But their idea of who the Messiah was was this guy that was going to come in and deliver Israel. He's going to bring a physical kingdom um, here to earth. And so he's going to reestablish Israel as a national presence and an entity. So he was going to do this um, by sitting on the throne and overthrowing Rome. And Palestine and Judea, Israel essentially, they would rule that part of the world. And so these guys, that were watching Jesus as he was doing his ministry and thought, man, Maybe this is the guy. He speaks with authority. He heals. He has clearly some special power and connection with God. And so as he was rising to power, they're sitting there, and they're watching, and they're waiting. They're watching, and they're waiting to see what he's going to do. And then there's Judas. And for Judas, Jesus was always a means to an end. Judas and Jesus, we see throughout the ministry, and we'll see today, they had competing agendas but Judas knew this, if he was the Messiah, and it seemed like he was, that when he rose to power, that those that were with Jesus would also rise to power. So he wanted to be with them. But there was a few things about Jesus that actually bugged Judas. The first is this. Jesus was pretty slow in his approach to this. And he didn't hate the Romans enough. And so if he was going to overthrow the Romans and their power at the time, then Jesus needed to hate them. And in fact, the opposite was true is Jesus. He didn't seem to hate them, but he actually seemed to love them. And in fact, at one point, he actually heals an associate of a Roman centurion. Another thing that Jesus did that Judas thought was odd if he was the Messiah was that he ostracized the religious leaders of the day. Jesus seemed to be getting arguments with people, and typically they would be the religious leaders and the Pharisees of the day. And if Jesus was the Messiah, he was gonna to have to have these religious leaders. Uh, And these Pharisees stand up and proclaim him as such. So Judas thought, like, hey, like, if you're going to be the leader of these people, then why do you keep offending them? And this is confusing to Judas. Another thing that Jesus didn't do is he didn't seem to really care about building up his own war chest. And if they were going to go to war and have a physical war to establish a physical kingdom, then they needed money. Anybody that knows anything about war or has watched any TV shows or movies about war, you know that money is a necessary thing to have. And Jesus just didn't seem to care about it. He seemed to give it away when he seemed to possess it for himself. And Judas, as the, uh, the treasurer of the disciples, didn't like that about him. And then there's this one final story that we see where this is just the final straw for Judas. Where Judas, Judas just goes, I've had enough of, of this Jesus. So I'm going to do something about it. And we see that there's this, these competing agendas between Judas and Jesus, and they come to a head in this story. And the reality is that there's a little bit of, of Judas in us all. There's a little bit of Judas in uh, and us all in this way, and that we all have competing agendas. We all have an idea of how we want our lives to be and how we want our lives to go, and we want Jesus, our God, to fit into that agenda and to fit into our lives and what we want. And when those things, when God's agenda and our agenda come up against each other, there's friction. And we're not really sure how it all works, but we think that if we get, there's, there's some kind of magic formula or magic trick that we can get Jesus to do what we want. And so we, we essentially treat Jesus as if he's Christian karma. So if we do enough good things, then Jesus will do good things for us. So we, we pray things or we think things like, if I can just figure out what pleases God, then maybe God will go, oh, look, Josh is doing all these good things. Let me give him good things in, in return. And so we do things like go to church, or we pray, or we give money, or we promise to do things like call our parents or uh, not yell at our kids, maybe that's only me, um, or We decide we're going to recycle, whatever it is. We just decide, hey, there must be some magic combination to get God things to do what I want him to do in my life. And why is it that way? It's because all of us in our hearts, at least at the beginning of our relationships with Jesus, we're consumers. That's how we're born, and that's what we're like. And we all start there, and here's the reality. It's it's okay to start there. In fact, it's okay to stay there. God radically loves you no matter where you're at in your journey with him. And his grace and his belonging for you will never change. In fact, we have stories in the scriptures, like the parable of the lost son, that talk about Jesus' love for the son that walks away from him and just wants nothing to do with them. And at the end of that story, you essentially see the son come back, but you also see this father that it's pretty evident that he's been going out every day looking for his son return, and when he sees him, he runs to him. This, this son was simply a consumer at the end of the day. But Jesus loves him no matter what, and he loves us too if we decide that we're just going to be consumers and not go any further. But when our agendas and God's agendas are competing and they come up against each other, what happens is there's these fork-in-the-road moments for us where we get to see who we are And what we think about God's love for us. And so we see this with Judas. This is his story, and this is how things go down. If you want to turn with me, if you want to open up your Bibles or your smartphones or just read along with us, we're going to be in Matthew 26. Matthew 26 is Jesus is at this house of this man named Simon. He's called Simon the leper in the scriptures. We're really not sure why that is. At some point, he had leprosy, um, either current or previously. But starting in verse 6, it says this, While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Okay, so quick summary here. He's in the home of Simon the leper, that, like I just said. There's a woman that comes, she pours a very expensive bottle of perfume on his head. And you can see the very next part, that the disciples get indignant, they get angry. They say, why this waste? This could have been used for something good, like give that money to the poor. And in fact, this is Matthew's account, but later John writes a book. And he gives us a little bit more to the story. And so we're going to go there real quick. And it's John chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. And John gives a little bit more details um, than than Matthew about what actually happens when these disciples get angry. And in verse 4 of John chapter 12, it says this, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So you can see it wasn't just all the disciples that came to this conclusion on their own. Judas kind of starts this. So he goes, hey, like, this, this perfume, it could have been, this could have been given, you know, it could have been sold, and we could have used this money to give it to the poor. Um, and so Judas is the instigator here. And then verse 6, you see his motive kind of been made clear. It says this, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag, a.k.a. the treasurer, He used to help himself to to what was put into it. So we see Judas was the treasurer, and he used to skim off the top, right? And so he wanted this money not to give it to the poor, but so he could have more money for himself. Another way to put this is he just wanted to basically gather more money for his own personal war chest. And so you can see Judas here. He's angry about what's going on. The disciples are indignant because, like, yeah, you're right, Judas. Like, this isn't right. We need to do something about this. But Jesus, being Jesus and knowing what's going on and knowing their hearts, he says this, and he goes back in Matthew 26, and we'll be in Matthew the rest of the time. In verse 10, he says this, "'Aware of this, Jesus said to them, "'Why are you bothering this woman? "'She has done a beautiful thing to me. "'The poor you will always have with you, "'but you will not always have me. "'When she poured this perfume on my body, "'she did it to prepare me for burial.'" Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now this is a pretty phenomenal line. Like pretty incredible if you think about it. Jesus basically has a prophecy here, right? Like what she's done here will be told forever. And we are fulfillment of that prophecy 2,000 years later sitting here today because we're sitting here talking about this story. Which is you know, pretty insane if you think about it. Um, and what, hap- what happens next here, and I think this is very important because it happens very next, we see what happens with Judas. And again, for Judas, this is a pretty big moment in his life. But he says this in verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Okay. So they just had this conversation, right? This woman puts pours perfume on Jesus. They're indignant about the way that Jesus uh, handles this situation, the way that this woman uh, uses this perfume. And so Jesus says, all right, like, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to force Jesus' hand. If he doesn't want to become king on his own, if he wants to just throw away money, then I'm done. So he goes to the chief priest and goes, hey, you guys have an issue you guys want to do something about this guy. You want to arrest him. You have other intentions, but you can't get to him because he's too popular, right? Like, the crowds are around. He's healing crowds. What are you going to do, go and arrest him in front of everybody and cause a riot? He's like, but I'm, I'm an insider, so I can let you know when we have these private moments, set up something for you, and then when the time is right, I'll let you know, and you can come and arrest him without the crowds around. So that's what happens. And so you see in, in verse 15, they say, they said, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And then, this is, this is crazy, one of the most absurd statements in the scriptures, but Matthew says this, it says, from then on, in verse 16, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That's crazy, because if you're Judas, what have you seen from Jesus, You've walked with Jesus for these last three years. You were there on the boat with him when the sea was going crazy, when the storm was picking up, and Jesus spoke to the weather and calmed it down. You were there when Jesus spit into mud, put it in his hands, and into the dirt, and put, uh, spit into the dirt and put the mud in his hands and put it on a dude's eyes, and the guy could see. This is crazy. Judas was there when Jesus, when Lazarus had been in the tomb for, for three or four days. In fact, he had been there so long that his family was like, nah, just leave him in there. He's going he's to stink. And he was there when Jesus brought Lazarus out of the tomb and healed him. And yet, here Judas is betraying Jesus. And what we're about to learn from Judas is a hard lesson that I hope that we can all learn in an easier way. And it's simply this, that God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be thwarted. Again, that God's hand cannot be forced and his will can't be thwarted. And here's the question, what was Judas's motive in portraying Jesus? This has been the age-old question for the last 2,000 years or so. And I have the answer for you today in case you've been wondering. Just kidding. I do have an educated guess though. It seems like based on what we've seen to this point in the story and what we're going to see after this, that somehow Judas thought he could force Jesus' hand and actually proclaim himself Messiah and bring this kingdom to earth now. So essentially Judas was impatient with Jesus' timing. And he assumed that because he was Messiah and because he had a plan and was moving forward that Jesus would essentially protect himself. That when they came to arrest him that Jesus had, he would be forced, backed into a corner, and essentially have to come clean and say, this is who I am. Unfortunately, that was a bad assumption to make. And I'm not going to read all of this, but I will summarize it. Right after Jesus uh, or Judas decides to betray Jesus, uh, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He does that with this, his disciples. Um, right after they have this Passover meal together, this is where we get communion from, right? And he sits down with them, and he says, hey, somebody's going to betray me. Judas runs out. The rest of the disciples, they go into the garden. And Jesus is there. And while he's there, Judas, right, he goes to the chief priest. He brings him back, and he says, hey, look, um, Jesus is is in the garden. And I'm going to take you there. And the one that I kiss on the cheek, that's the one you need to get. Which the ironic thing is, like, Judas didn't need to kiss him on the cheek. They knew who Jesus was. But, that, but that's what happens. So Judas does this. Jesus is arrested. and um, They took him, uh, the, the chief priests and the leaders of the law, or the teachers of the law, they, they took Jesus. And his disciples fled. And Judas, in that moment, left with them. And then here's what happens right after that. In Matthew 27, verse 1, it says this. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the, of the people made their plans on how, um, yeah, made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, what's interesting here is like they're, they're supposed to have a trial, right? Like, that's how these things work. But the reality is, is like they didn't want a trial. They had already determined that Jesus was guilty months earlier. And, and Judas here, he realizes that he's kind of been duped. Because now they've taken him to Pilate, so Rome's involved. And what Judas knew is that according to the Jewish law, they couldn't actually execute Jesus. Like, they couldn't kill him. And so what Judas thought is that he was really kind of safe here, Jesus was. Like, he assumed that, like, essentially they would have, uh, you know, a Jewish, um, that they would have a, bring Jewish, Jesus... You know, to a Jewish court, and they would have this whole proceeding. And Judas, like, basically put to the fire, would essentially say, like, hey, like, I'm the Messiah, and he would come clean. And when things kind of go, take a left-hand turn, and Rome gets involved, Judas starts to freak out a little bit. And so in verse 3, we see this. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned... He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. So again, you can kind of see, like, this wasn't Judas' intention for him to go to Rome. So then he confesses, and he says this. He says, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Because he knew it. He knew what was going to happen. And then verse, later in verse 4, he says, the uh, chief priest and the teachers of the law, they say this. What is that to us, they replied, That's your responsibility. Essentially, these chief priests are saying to Judas, hey, you chose this path. This destination, the destination's clear. You're responsible for the outcome of this journey, Judas. And now Judas wants to back up. He wants to take back the decisions that that he's made. And the reality is, is that there's some decisions that Judas and none of us can come back from. You can't unmake some, some decisions that we make in life. You can only receive forgiveness for them. And Judas knows this in this moment. And so Judas throws his money into the temple and he left. And then he went away and he had such remorse that he hung himself. Because the reality for Judas, this decision was so overwhelming for him that he couldn't bear living with the consequences of this choice. And honestly, I think that's so sad for Judas because I didn't think it had to end this way. In fact, we see in the story of Peter who uh, denies Jesus three times. Jesus predicts that when they have Passover meal. And Peter goes, no way, I'll never do that to you, Jesus. Um, And then does it. And we have this beautiful story at the end of John where Jesus restores Peter and he goes, hey, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And at the end, Jesus goes, yeah, I know you love me. I know you love me. And I think Jesus would have had a very similar conversation with Judas if Judas didn't take his life. And so I, I say that partially because if there's anybody in this room that feels like they've made choices that they can't come back from, and I want you guys to know something that Judas did not there's a God that loves you so deeply. There's nothing that you can do that can't be undone or that you can't have forgiveness for and restoration for. But Judas is gone here. Jesus has been arrested, tried, crucified. And then he dies. And what we see in this is that God's, God's hand can't be forced. And again, his will can't be thwarted. And in some kind of crazy way, Judas trying to force Jesus' hand actually leads to God's will, right? And the reality is it leads to the salvation of the world, including us. See, one of the things that Judas was mistaken on is he thought he knew what God's will was in the world. Again, this Messiah was going to come and bring this physical kingdom and it was going to help out this one people group, these Jews. And what God had was such a grander, bigger plan in mind. He had the salvation of not a nation, but of nations, an entire world. So sometimes when we have these competing agendas with Jesus, when we think we know what's best, and we make these decisions in a moment, we don't realize that God has a much bigger story going on that he wants to invite us into. And that's what we see in here with Judas. He's invited into a bigger He he was invited into a bigger story, and he couldn't see it. And although this is a horrible decision that Judas made, there's good that that does come from it. But the reality is, is, again, that God's hand can't be forced, and his will can't be thwarted. Now, here's the question. What does this have to do with us? What does it have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? And again, I think it's simply this, that when we begin to follow Jesus, we all start as consumers. We all start there. We go, hey, I have a plan, and God, will you help me with it? And it's okay to start there. But along the way, as your agenda rubs up against God's agenda, you're going to have these moments in your life where you have a fork in the road, a defining moment. And you're going to have these moments, they feel like these moral imperatives. Like, I have to do this, or I can't do this. You're going to have these moments that are going to feel like dreams. Whether it's the dream of a person that you want to marry one day, or a career, or a job, or a place to live. And you're going to have these moments where your agenda for those things is going to compete with God's. And you're going to know it, you're going to know it in your soul. And you're going to have these moments where you're going to have to decide what to do. Are you going to trust yourself and your own agenda? Or are you going to open up your hand and give that thing to God? And I remember, and again, I've had, I've a, I've had a lot of these moments in my life. And some I've gone, nah, God, I'm, I'm holding on to this. And I've had others where my hand is slowly open one of those moments is when I was 19 years old, and I was um, dating a girl named Jean, and um, we had dated for two and a half months over that summer. And for some of you guys, that's a short time. For that that time, that was the longest relationship that I had ever had, and I was pretty excited about it. And I really liked this girl. Um, and I was mowing my lawn one day at the end of the summer, and I just had this epiphany um, that I was using this girl as a rebound to get over another girl I dated previously. And And I just had this moment where I feel like God just like flashed my life before my eyes. And I just, I realized I had become somebody that I hated. Because no matter what I had done in life, I've always been a pretty relational person. I had promised myself I would never use another person. And here I was becoming the villain in my own story. And So I had this moment and God as I'm mowing the lawn, I just feel like he's speaking to me. And I'm just like, he said, like, Josh, break up with this girl and give me everything. And I'm like, God, I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> like, I just can't. I was like, if you give me a, a best friend that's also a Christian, I, I will give up everything for you. And I didn't know at that time you're not supposed to throw out like fleeces to God. Like, I just assumed like, I could do whatever I wanted. I was a consumer. <laughs> and so I know better now, but, you know, whatever. So, so I break up with this girl. And the next week, I break up with her again because I got back with her. And I break up with her again the next week. And I got back with her. And I break up with her again. because She was crying. And it's hard. Like, I'm just a people pleaser. But it was it was really tough. Like, because it's, it's tough moving from a consumer to a follower. But I knew, like, that's what I had to do. And so eventually, I did break up with a girl. Um, and And I moved on from that. But... Um, but the re- reality is, is that what God was saying to me in that moment is hey Josh let it go trust me follow me let it go trust me follow me my question for you is what is that thing for you what is the competing agenda is it a relationship is it a career is it a house is it where you live What is hard for you? What is so hard for you to give up if God asks you to? And the answer that you have in this in this moment, whether you choose to give it up or you or you choose not to, your answer in that moment determines whether you're a consumer or or a follower. And again, I want to be clear. If you stay as a consumer, God radically loves you, and his love for you is not gonna change whether you decide to stay here with a closed fist or you bring it open. But can I just tell you your experience of his love and your experience of the life that God has for you will be diminished if you close your hand. And it's in these fork of the road moments when we discover whether we have moved from a simple consumer to a follower, it's in these moments there's this free fall and we have to trust God to catch us It's in these moments where our faith intersects with God's faithfulness, and God becomes alive to us. And it's in these moments when we finally say, God, I want what you want more than what I want. And I know that's not easy. For some of us, honestly, we're just not there yet, and that's okay. And for some of us, maybe the challenge is to consider this prayer. God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. Now, that's a tongue twister, so I'm going to say it again. God, I want to want what you want more than I want, but I'm simply not there. Will you please help me to get there? Again, God, I want to want what you want more than what I want, but I'm not there. Will you please help me get there? And honestly, I think that prayer is incredibly honest, and it's courageous, and I think it's one that honors God. I think God would be very pleased with a prayer like that. We don't have to have it all together for God to move in our lives. And I'm going to end here. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't stop Judas from doing what Judas intended to do. I think it's also interesting that Judas didn't stop Jesus and what Jesus intended to do. And if I'm being really honest with you, I don't think God's going to stop you from doing what you intend to do. And for some of us, that should scare our hands open. Because if Judas was here today, I think what he would say to us is that there are some things that can't be undone, only forgiven. I think he would say, blessed is the one who chooses to do the will of God rather than attempting to impose their own will on God. Jesus has invited us into a story much larger than our own. A story that is so much bigger and so grander. A story that when we look back on the one day when we chose to trust him, we're going to look back with such incredible joy and relief. We're going to look back and say, that was a season of life when God became so real to me. And to think, I almost missed it for something so small and so insignificant when I look back. I'm not even sure what the draw was to begin with we're going to take communion here in a couple minutes and again communion the first communion happened in that last Passover before Jesus went into the garden now, if you remember when Jesus goes into the garden he has this prayer right he gets on his knees and he takes these three disciples with them even closer He has this prayer to God, and he begins to sweat blood, which is a sign of stress, that he was about to have to make a very difficult decision. If you remember what Jesus says in that moment, he goes, Hey, God, if it's your will, please let this cup pass. Then he says this phrase that I think we all should adopt, and he goes, But not my will, but your will be done. And so for us, as we celebrate communion today, may this be a moment for us where we can sit and reflect and maybe for the first time go, God, not my will, but your will be done. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for your example, God. In the garden, God, Jesus, you show us that there are just things in life that just aren't easy, and there are things that are really close to our vest God, that we just we want to have closed fists on. God, I pray that you give us the courage to begin to open our fists up. God, you help us to have open hands that when our agenda comes up against your agenda, when they compete, God, that we would trust you. And in that trust, that we would experience the love and the grace and the mercy and the joy and the peace that you have for us. God, we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.